Thank you, String Quartet. That was just uh, fantastic. For a split second while they were playing, I got to hear it twice. I thought, man, maybe I should have played a violin. And then I, well, I got over that. Anyway, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, page 225 in your church Bible. This morning begins a nine-week series uh, that we'll be looking at passages in the book of 1 Samuel. Just to give you a little backdrop before we drop in here to 1 Samuel 1. Just uh, before the, the book of Samuel begins, so to speak, in the book of Judges, the last verse of the book of Judges says this in the last verse. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Israel, God's chosen people, are in spiritual, moral, and political chaos at the beginning of 1 Samuel. The chosen people of God, Israel, this this nation that was supposed to display the beauty and glory of God, not only in Israel, but to the world, was not living out their kingdom priority, the kingdom mandate that they had been given. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, which are really one book divided up later, are books that detail how God, in spite of Israel's apostasy, in spite of Israel's disobedience, in spite of Israel's uh, spiritual apathy, begins to move forward in advancing that kingdom plan of God through Israel, through individuals who he raises up to do the work that only God can do, even in adverse circumstances. And so that's what we've been looking at the last nine weeks the next nine weeks of the summer. This morning, I want, uh, when we look into this first chapter and into the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 2, I want us to see two patterns of how God works. I want you to see a micro pattern, a pattern of how God often works with individuals. And then I want you to see the macro pattern for how God brings and advances his kingdom in the world as well. So one is micro, one is macro. You need to sort of understand uh, both of these patterns. In some sense, you need to put the pattern of the micro deliverance that uh, we all want and desire in with God's macro pattern of bringing in his kingdom. And just uh, just to preface this sermon, I don't think you're going to like what God has to say in this text, okay? And it won't just be that I'm preaching. That may be part of it, but it's bigger than that, I think. You're not going to like the kind of God that God presents himself to be. Because in this text, we're going to find out that God is a God who is willing to let us suffer. In fact, he's willing to orchestrate the details of our life so that we do suffer in order to do good in us and in the world. And we don't want a God like that. I mean, I personally would rather have a God who who was more like a personal assistant to me, right? God bless my agenda. You know, it's like like Tracy's prayer from Matthew 6, reinterpreted, you know? Lord, my kingdom come, my will be done, right? You help me with my project. God has a whole different kingdom he's trying to operate and to develop and, and to bring forth. And often he is willing to put us in difficult circumstances to do the things he needs to do for his kingdom 
You're not going to like it. I warned you. Let's dive in. Let's look at the micro pattern. First Samuel 1. We open up the story. It says this. There was a certain man of Rephaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah, but Hannah had no children. We're introduced to the three main characters of the, 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 the text we're going to look at. We've got Elkanah, who's the husband. He's married to Hannah. She doesn't have children. He's also married to Penina, who does have children. And immediately you're confronted with, oh, good grief. What is the Bible? I mean, it you know, permits bigamy here? Really? Well, it does. All throughout the Old Testament, this seems to happen. God doesn't seem to be as concerned with it, but it's never presented as good. And it's never presented as being wise. And it does contradict the plan of God from Genesis 2 that a husband, one man, one woman together in marriage. But here you have it. And if you get offended by this in the Bible, just remember, God puts up with you and your sin and allows you to exist. So let's be gracious to Hannah, Elkanah, and Penina. Now, verses 3 through 8, we begin to see God's micro-pattern for how he often works to advance his kingdom in individual lives. Verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On that day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Elkanah is, is a reasonably godly man in spite of the spiritual chaos of Israel. He leads his family to worship to Shiloh, which is where the, the, the communal worship of Israel was taking place at this time. The temple has not been built. It won't be built for hundreds of years by Solomon later. It's, it, it's, it's where the tabernacle probably came, and they put some kind of a permanent structure there. And this is where Israel was called to worship. Now, it mentions Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. The reason he mentions these three priests, the father and his two sons, is later he will show that Hophni and Phinehas are priests who are spiritually abusive. They are violating the women who come to worship. They are taking too much of the sacrifices for themselves. They are selfish, spiritually out of it in a very real way. They are not good spiritual leaders, and Eli, their father, lets them get away with that. So this is the environment for Elkanah, but he's bringing his family to worship. He gives portions to Penina's wife, to all her sons and daughters. To Hannah, he gave a double portion. And then we're given a clue to the pattern of how God works with individuals. He says, but he gave to Hannah a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. That's what the text says. The Lord closed her womb. God has orchestrated Hannah's life in such a way that she's unable to have children. And for Hannah, this is a disaster. I think for any woman who desires children, this would be a heartbreaking and grievous trial for anyone to go through. And for Hannah, being an Israelite woman at this time, it, it might have even been greater the spiritual and social burden that she would have had. For an Israelite woman not to be able to have any children and certainly not to have a son would, it would have meant that her social security was in jeopardy. Her retirement plan to protect her and her family was gone. She would, her identity, so to speak, in the community would have been under question. 
And the text says that God orchestrated this in Hannah's life. Now it gets worse for Hannah. That was bad enough. Verse 6, and her rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Again, we're told the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. But now we see that Penina, the other wife, is now badgering Hannah and reminding Hannah that Penina has children and you don't, Hannah. Verse 7, it went on year by year. This was not just a momentary issue. This wasn't just one argument. It happened over and over again. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke provoke Hannah. This was a long-term, grievous, horrific situation for Hannah to be in. She was undone. She was, she was heartbroken. She didn't understand why God had, wouldn't give her a child. She probably blamed herself and thought that God had abandoned her. She probably feels the, 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 the gossip that's taking place in the community. And now she has Penina uh, uh, mocking her and, and rubbing it in, so to speak. And then verse 8, it still gets worse. Oh, Elkanah. Oh. In the south, we would say to Elkanah, God bless his heart, which means God have mercy on this idiot, okay? Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? He's trying to fix her problem. Stop crying and start eating. And then he makes it all about himself. Oh, this is beautiful. Am I not more to you than ten sons? So he can't enter into her anguish. He can't enter into her, her, her heartbreak. He tells her, snap out of it. Eat, drink. Come on, let's get, you know, come on, stop crying. Tries to fix the problem. Then he makes it all about himself. I mean, if you're sad and you're not eating, what does this mean about me? Am I not worth it? Oh, it's a disaster. Wives, if your husband does anything remotely like this this week, you have my permission to look at him and say, thank you, Elkanah. That was very helpful. So she has no support, or not full support, even at home, from her husband. Now, this is sort of the opening part of the pattern. When God begins to work with individuals, Many times, the scripture's full of this, he begins to put us in desperate situations so that we begin to desperately depend upon the Lord. Now, we don't want a God like that. Who wants a God like that? I want a God who, who delivers me. I want a God who keeps me from these kinds of problems. But the text is very clear, and there are many other passages in the New Testament that, that talk about the fact that God allows trials into our life. He orchestrates difficulties into our, our life for, 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 for our good. And that's what he's doing to Hannah. This is really a horrific situation for this woman to be in. No children, no sons. The other wife mocking her, a husband who can't relate to her well. She's in a desperate situation. Tim Keller, writing about suffering, said these words. When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. 
You see, unless God sort of puts you in these desperate situations from time to time, it's, it, it, it's, it's unlikely that you will be desperate for God in the way you ought to be desperate because you actually are more dependent upon God than you actually believe until you get into a jam. And then you get it. That's what God has done for Hannah. Now, here's what Hannah begins to do. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah begins to go to the only one who can help her. The only one that she has the, pow- has the power to help her. She begins to call out to him in distress. She pours her heart, our, our heart out to God. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She pours herself out to God. She pours her need out to the God. She goes to God now believing that you're the only one who can help me. And she calls him the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a, is a, a phrase that, that means God is sovereign over the universe. He's the Lord over everything. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of everything. She's going to this sovereign Lord of the universe and she's taking her personal concerns to him, believing that he cares for her. Now, I wish it weren't true. But I suspect that a lot of you are a lot like me. Dysfunctional as you are and as I am. Is that I pray a lot more when I'm in a bad situation. When the chips are down, I start praying the way I ought to pray every day. But I'm really praying now. There's where Hannah was. Now, I think some of you would look at Hannah's vow and, and you probably not, you might not like that. You say, wait a minute. I mean, she, she bargains with God. She says, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I mean, isn't that, that really, I mean, is that really correct what she did? Well, listen, I know some of us have prayed. Have you ever, I don't know, some, have you ever prayed a prayer like this? I'll have you raise your hand in a minute. You know, say, Lord, if you get me out of this jam, I promise to, and then you, you know, I'll come to church every week. I promise I'll do extra. Has anybody ever prayed a prayer like that? Raise your hand. You see, you guys, this is so shameful. People are going like this. And then while they do that, they're looking at the, the and they're going to look at him, pastor. That's not what she's doing here. I don't think so. For a couple of reasons. Number one, in the text itself, it already mentioned Hophni and Phinehas, these two priests. Later we'll find out these are immoral priests who are spiritually abusing God's people. These are, it's not good what's going on in Shiloh. Shiloh is a spiritual mess. I think Hannah knows that. I think she's heard the rumors. I think it's why it's in the text. And when we see Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, I think it will become much more clear that she is thinking about the kingdom of God and, and how the, the, the nation of Israel needs to be rescued. I think she's aware of this. And so I don't think a mom who says, I will give my son back to you, God, if you give him to me, and I will send him to a spiritual mess of a place like Shiloh is some kind of a selfish prayer. And... 
when she gives her son to Shiloh to be used of God at the place of worship, her son is probably going to be about three, four, or five years old. That's not selfish either. I can't imagine any mom saying, oh, I, you know, I, when my son is three years old, I'm going to give him to the Lord and I'll only see him once a year for the rest of his life. You're going to do that. Now, if you have teenagers, you would do that. But that's a different issue. This is not some selfish prayer. This is not some woman bargaining with God. This is a woman who is, God has purposely, directly put in a horrible place. She's calling out to the Lord of hosts and she's concerned about Israel's situation and she's saying, I will give my son back to you to use at worship and maybe through him you can clean up the spiritual mess going on in Israel. That is not a selfish prayer. That is a thy kingdom come, thy will be done prayer. And unfortunately, it often takes God putting you in a bad situation for you to start praying like Hannah. And that's why he seems to do this on a regular basis for, much, for many of us. This is the pattern the micro pattern for God's kingdom to work in an individual life. He puts you in a difficult situation. He forces you to, to get your eyes back on God himself and get your eyes back on what he's doing in the world, not yourself, so that you will start to pray in dependence upon God and you'll start to be praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that's exactly the place that God wants you to be. And the thing is, we don't like that. But the reality is God knows more than we. He knows that if I am in a he knows that if I'm in a desperate place and I'm praying to God, depending upon him, calling out for his kingdom to be furthered, if he gets me into that place, that is far better for me to be in that place than to have my life going pretty well, but pretty lack warm, lukewarm spiritually. You know, if, I, if my life is going reasonably okay, but I'm not really depending upon God and praying about his kingdom, that's worse than being in a desperate situation, calling out to the God of the universe to deal with it. We don't want a God like that, but that's the God we have. It's interesting. When I think back to all that, I mean, I had a lot of coaches. I played a lot of sports in high school. I had a lot of music directors, you know, and the trumpet and trumpet teachers and choir teachers. I had a lot of teachers in school. Listen, when I look back to my high school days, the teachers that were real easy and cool and fun, I could care less about them. I look back on the people who, who I had to suffer under. And those are the teachers. Those are the, the musical teachers I respect. I had a guy in baseball. I had a baseball coach named Bill Merton. Bill, Bill Merton. He, he, was, he was a psycho. I hope he listens to this sermon. I'm, 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 I should have told him he was a psycho a long time ago, but he was. We were playing baseball, okay? I played baseball because it was a nice game. Baseball's nice. You sit, you sit down half the game, okay? It's beautiful. You don't run that much. It's not like basketball where you're running all the time. It's not like football where you could get killed. It's baseball. He was crazy. 
Every time we made a mental mistake, he would force us to run a lap, which is a half a mile. Every day after practice, we were running sometimes eight, nine, ten miles because of the mistakes we made. I thought I had made a terrible mistake, and I thought I was on the track team, not the baseball team anymore. He was crazy. And I didn't like him my first year as a freshman. Boy, but as a sophomore, I liked him a little better because we were a great team. Why? Because he almost killed us the year before. And see, I look at, at Coach Merton and say, he was a great coach because he pushed me to my limits. He made me suffer, and I'm so thankful for him. But when God does that to me, I'm all ticked off. When God does the same work that I respect anyone else, do I say, hey, what's going on? Well, what's wrong with my life? Hey, I didn't pay. We've got to deal with the God that we see presented in the scripture. He allows us to be in desperate situations to get us to desperately pray for him and think about his kingdom. That's exactly where he wants us to be. That's exactly the best place for us to be, actually. That's the first micro pattern of how God works in individuals. Now, let's look at the macro pattern for God's work in extending his kingdom. And we see this in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. In 1 Samuel 2, Hannah offers this prayer of thanksgiving for bailing her out, for providing her with a son. Now it's going to be of great sacrifice. She's going to wean him and bring him back to Shiloh. Not the greatest place to go, but she does that. Now she offers a prayer of thanksgiving. In verses 1 through 3, she simply thanks God for the micro-salvation she has received in the, in the birth of her son. But in verses 4 through 8, what Hannah begins to do is begin to, to pray back to God, to praise God for the way God's kingdom works sort of generally in the world. Notice what she says, verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Which, which she's saying is, God, the way you work is, you don't work with the people of strength. You work with the people of weakness. Those who are mighty and self-sufficient get knocked down in God's kingdom. Those who are feeble and acknowledge that find strength. Verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. The self-satisfied who think they can provide on their own will grow hungry. But those who were hungry and call out to God, God will, 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 will cause him to cease to hunger. <coughs> Verse 7. The Lord makes poor, he makes rich, he brings low, and he exalts. What Hannah is rehearsing over and over and over again is... That the way that God's kingdom goes forth, it goes forth through weakness, not through strength. You know what Jesus said. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, how do you get into the kingdom of God? You have to become like a little child. What's a little child like? A little child is dependent on God through Jesus Christ to get them into the kingdom. You don't get there by your strength or your might. You get there by being a child, being dependent she goes on in verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
sort of reminds you of what James says, you know, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. The whole way the kingdom works is the kingdom of God does not work for the strong people who in their self-sufficiency try to get to God in their strength. It always works through weakness. People who admit their dependence, people who admit their weakness, that's the person who ends up in the kingdom and that's the person who progresses in God's kingdom. Paul himself prayed for this thorn in the flesh that he had over and over again. Three times he prayed against it. And, and, and Jesus responds to him by saying, my grace is sufficient for thee. In your weakness, then I can become strong. That's the way of the kingdom. But there's more. What Hannah does in these next two verses is frankly astounding. Verse nine, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. Again, it's the same theme. God's kingdom moves in weakness. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. And now what Hannah seems to do is to take her understanding of God's kingdom that comes through weakness where the strong are broken down and the weak and the humble are in, so to speak. He then, she then looks forward to the day when God's kingdom will be consummated. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then she goes on to say, he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now, when you read this, you think, wait a minute, there is no king in Israel now. How how, how does Hannah figure this out? There isn't a king. In fact, a lot of commentators will say, this can't be the words of Hannah. Uh, Maybe a scribe who put the the book together added that. I think not. Deuteronomy 17 talks about the responsibilities of a king who would be king over Israel. Hannah may have been familiar with that. Certainly, they tried to make Gideon a king in the book of Judges. She might have been familiar with that. And certainly, as Judges, the end of Judges says there was no king in Israel. It's not un, it would not be unlikely necessary that Hannah would say, we need a king. We need a king to come to bring in some righteousness. We need a king to bring uh, order out of the moral and spiritual chaos that we're in. And of course, the amazing thing about this prayer is, It will be her son, Samuel, who will anoint Saul and anoint David. David, in particular, will be a king after God's own heart. He will lead the nation to to, to see a far more comprehensive and and consistent uh, ordering of the nation under the lordship of God. But since, go back to verse 10, she's talking about the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. She's looking at the future consummation. You can't help but think that what Hannah actually is alluding to is something much bigger than Saul and something much bigger than David. She is looking forward to another king, the son of David, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, who will be the one who will bring this kingdom to consummation. Now, how much of this Hannah completely understood? How much of the spirit was just motivating her as she prayed? It's hard to say. I will say Hannah is an excellent theologian, a brilliant theologian. 
She's tying her personal micro story of salvation to the larger story of the macro salvation of God's kingdom. She's tying them both together beautifully, not only in her story, but also in her prayer. And what I think Hannah is saying here, and she's praying, and certainly we know as we've read the scripture, is that it's in Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God goes forward. And how did the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ go forward? It was not initially in strength, was it? No. It was in the weakness of God, the Lord of hosts, putting on a human body and coming in weakness. It was the weakness of, of, of God, the Lord of hosts, in a human body hanging on the cross for our sins. It was in the weakness of his death that brings forth the kingdom. In other words, the macro pattern for God's coming kingdom advancement is similar to the micro pattern that he works in each of our lives. Tim Keller, I think, brings this together very well when he says this. Jesus' entire mission was to take evil on and end it. But as we've seen, evil is so deeply rooted in the human heart that if Christ had come in power to destroy it everywhere he found it, he would have had to destroy us too. Instead of coming as a general at the head of an army, he went in weakness to the cross in order to pay for our sins so that someday he will return to wipe out evil without having to judge us as well. He will be able to receive us to himself because he bore our judgment himself on Calvary. The kingdom of God that is going to be consummated one day when Jesus comes again and remakes this world, that inbringing of that kingdom came in the weakness of the Lord of hosts who put on a human body and died a death of weakness in order to bring us to himself. And that macro pattern of how God works is similar to the micro pattern that God works in your life through your weakness. So in just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. When you take that bread and you drink that cup, I think some of you, while the bread is being passed, you need to just call out to God if you're in a desperate situation. I mean, tell him what you think. Pour out your heart to him. Also, pour out your heart to him in a way that says, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When you take the, the bread and when you take the cup, re- remember that the macro, the macro pattern of God's kingdom that comes into the world comes into the weakness of a savior who died in your place. And this is what we need to remember to connect our micro world that we need a, a micro salvation, so to speak, and the macro pattern of God's bringing his kingdom to the whole. We need, we need to think about it this way. Paul says this in Romans 8. He said, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, we're children of God. We come to God in faith as a child, dependent. That's how we get into the kingdom. But then, but then Paul goes on to say, and if children, then heirs. We're like, oh, I'm an heir. I'm an heir. That's great. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Oh man, I'm an heir of the king. I'm, a, I'm an heir of the king of kings. Yeah, but well, listen to the rest of the verse. Provided we suffer with him. 
<laughs> we don't like that. The heir part sounds good. I'm an heir of the king. Woo! Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, Jesus did not come to die and suffer so that we would never suffer. Oh, no. He died and suffered to bring us to himself so that when we suffered and died, so to speak, for the kingdom in our weakness, God's power displayed in Jesus could flow through us to be used in the advancement of God's kingdom to the world. One last thing. Jesus, when he instituted communion, said, I, I'm not going to drink of you know, the vine and, until I, I drink it anew with you in the, in the coming kingdom. I know some of you are in difficult situations. Some of you are in desperate situations like Hannah. One of the things we have to remember that whatever your desperation is, it won't last forever. But being in that consummated kingdom with Jesus Christ, free from sin, death, sickness, uh, enjoying the full consummation of God's kingdom, that will last forever. If you make that comparison, if you look to Jesus, if you see your micro salvation need in light of the macro salvation story, if you can connect those two together, if you can realize that God has your best interest at heart by putting you in a desperate situation. I'm not saying there won't be tears. I'm not going to do an Elkanah, you know, Elkanah on you. All right? I'm not, not going to say you won't, you won't have tears and you won't be in bad shape at times. But you'll have the endurance to get through. Because you know the future is coming a lot sooner than we think. And when it does, it will be glorious. Let's prepare for communion. Please bow your heads. I would like to invite anyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior to partake of communion together.